Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. This is very good news for an important Christian institution on the streets of glitzy, seedy, needy King's Cross in Sydney. The Wayside Chapel has been an institution there for just on 50 years, offering help and hope for countless needy, mostly homeless people. Five years ago, it looked like it was going to have to close. The old building was just simply falling down all over the place. But they embarked on a very ambitious fundraising drive to raise more than $8 million needed to rebuild the derelict centre. And they made it. Last weekend, there was a great celebration as the new Wayside Chapel was officially opened. And I'm very glad to say that the CEO and pastor of the Wayside Chapel, Graham Long, who's got quite a story of his own, joins us now on Open House. Graham, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. This was a huge undertaking, so it must have been so pleasing for you to see it saved. Yeah, I think I know how Moses felt before he, he went through the water. <laughs> uh, it looked impossible, really, but um, I'm glad to say uh, we're on the other side. We started with no money. We finished with no debt. So that's pretty good. It's wonderful. And some pretty high-profile support. Yeah, yeah. Look, we, we timed this very badly in a way. The GFC hit us at exactly the time that we said we need to raise the money. So I actually went in front of a lot of big hitters in this city and they told me how poor they were. So, you know, it, it, it was hard work. I'd hate to give the impression there was anything easy about this. Um, but, you know, the truth is there are a lot of generous people around and, and notwithstanding GFC, um, a handful of people parted with very big dollars to help us do this. Not that they need the publicity, but people like Dick Smith kicked in 300 grand, Malcolm Turnbull 250. With Dick Smith, I'd approached him and he'd said no. He'd already given away his million uh, for the year, which is an extraordinary thing for him to do. And I met him later in a meeting and he yelled across. There might have been a dozen people between us. And he said, Graham, how far short are you? And I said, 300 grand. And he said, okay. Now, within minutes, I had a phone call from his PA that said, what's your bank account numbers? I, I gave her those numbers, and the money was in our bank account before Dick walked off our property. That's, you know, that's pretty extraordinary. Does your heart skip a beat? Yeah, it did a bit. <laughs> I was pretty happy with that. What a wonderful thing. Mm. What's in the new building, and how's it changed from the old? Um, well, it, it's changed radically, of course. Um, the old building, when we offered homeless people a shower, which, which we had one shower, and it ran all day. It just ran all day. Um, But people had to come in, get their towel and their clothes and walk back out into the street and then walk down the street to the back of our building, which is where the shower was. And when they were done, they had to walk back out, you know, in the public. Nearly half of it was condemned. Oh, yeah, yeah. 40% of it was condemned. But um, so, so, you know, there wasn't much dignity involved in it either. And uh, now we've got showers and you know, toilets and laundries and all kinds of stuff. Um, the facility is fantastic. We've got a garden on the roof, uh, which we people learn how to grow their own veggies and herbs and that kind of thing. And then we've got a kitchen that we use to teach people how to cook those things. And then they see them eaten out through the cafe. So it's a pretty good program. Yeah. For those not familiar with either King's Cross or the Wayside Chapel, Graham, tell us about where it's come from, its origins, the context in which this work is done and what it actually does for the community there. Well, King's Cross itself has been uh, 
you know, many years ago, 40, 50 years ago, the only place you could buy a cup of coffee at 2am in Sydney was King's Cross. Yes. So King's Cross has always kind of been the cutting edge of lots of things, uh, both good and bad. Um, King's Cross was the seedy area of, of Sydney, um, so strip clubs and brothels and that kind of thing. Um, and um, it's, it's King's Cross still makes its name uh, not for all the right reasons, even though it's actually a, a lovely community to live in. Um, but it's, it's still famous for the wrong reasons. Um, and, and so the Wayside Chapel has been a part of King's Cross since 1964 and, um, and in the thick of it, um, I'm proud to say. So there's, it's always a... Uh, these days, King's Cross is a conglomeration of the very rich and the very poor, and, and not much in the middle. And so uh, Wayside Chapel sort of is in the middle, uh, trying to, we say to the poor, we wouldn't be here without those people because 80% of what runs us is private giving. And then we say to the rich, uh, this isn't a different species, this is your brother, this is your sister. So it makes a difference. We have to speak of Ted Knopfs, mm. who is the one who came up with the Wayside Chapel. That's right, Ted... Ted uh, started that in 1964 um, and uh, Ted became a bit of a legend really you know there's, he's, he's a very well-known name uh, he's been gone for quite some time but Ted Ted really pioneered lots of things which today uh, wouldn't cause anyone to raise their eyebrows but at the time you know the world was a very different place in yes. the 60s and the church was as stiff as a board and you know almost anything Ted said caused a ripple and um, you know, today it, there wouldn't be the kind of fuss, but in those days uh, there was all kinds of heat, and um, and so Ted pioneered lots of things: um, the first drop-in centre, the first uh, drug referral centre for people, um, a lot of the early work amongst Aboriginal people. Uh, the Freedom Rides started um, when uh, Ted was working with lots of famous names that are, were around Ted at the time. Um, so, so yeah, lots, many things. You know, life education started at the Wayside Chapel, and that's now a worldwide kind of a movement. He had this lovely expression, we all belong to the family of man. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. actually did that. Yeah, he used to say, I'm a human being and nobody's alien to me. Your overarching vision is love over hate. Mm. Why those words, Graham? Because they're the right words. Um, um, it, 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 we use the word love, and that straight away tells you we're not a welfare agency. We're, we're not an arm of government. Um, we are the church. Uh, and so the business we're in is love, and that is to be alongside of people and to care for them. Hate is the right word, uh, and I don't think anybody uses the word hate in their uh, mission statements anywhere. Um, but hate's the right word. And if you if you are at Wayside for long... You will people see people literally age ten years in six months, and I'm, that's not a metaphor. You'll see it. You'll see somebody lose every tooth in their head in the space of a couple of months. And um, hate's the right word. Self hate. People punish themselves. People are without mercy on drugs. Yeah, well, for lots of reasons. Uh, drugs can be part of it. It can be mental illness. It can be just a life journey where people at their deepest don't believe they're worthy of life and so they punish themselves and do their best to 
be evangelical and punish everybody else. You seek to express God's love to them. Yeah. Well, is, is there another kind? Uh, love doesn't denote uh, anything soppy. The, uh, the Wayside Chapel is not a place for wimps, actually. I'm sure. Um, and uh, love does not denote for me um, anything interior. It doesn't mean how you feel about somebody at all. You believe that suffering can be transformed by love. How does that happen? Uh, look, I've never volunteered for suffering, but uh, the truth of the matter is that um, love is expensive. Uh, love has always been expensive. Um, you know, in the church we talk about uh, God's love and grace being free, which it is, but that doesn't mean to say it's inexpensive. So um, love just means I take my agenda and put it to one side in order that I can be alongside of you. Well, that can be very expensive if I'm fixated on whatever little thing is my goal. Totally. Uh, to put that to one side can mean a loss of all sorts of things. The other interesting phrase that I'm arrested by is, your primary ambition at the chapel, that people feel met rather than worked on. Yeah, we we just know uh, that there's something about our society um, that convinces almost everybody that they're going through whatever they're going through on their own. Now, that's probably true uh, across the board. It's, it, it's true in the church. It's true everywhere. It's probably true for everybody except people who work in radio. Um, <laughs> so... Um, so if you can overcome this sense of I am on my own, nobody knows what I'm going through. If you can overcome that, uh, you have taken the most important step towards life and health. So we say to each other all the time, if somebody walks out of our place feeling met rather than worked on, then we've had a very good day. So people are not uh, problems to be solved. They're people to be with. Yes. On Open House, we're with Graham Long, the... CEO and pastor of the Wayside Chapel at King's Cross. Graham, I said at the top you've got quite a story of your own. How did you find yourself heading up what is a very significant organisation with such a heritage? Um, I was a postie at the time. Um, I was a very bad postie too. Um, I kept getting that wrong. So I wasn't destined for greatness as a postie. Um, in fact, I don't think they were far off kicking me out. <laughs> <laughs> Did you keep falling off that posty bike or something? I never take a lot of notice of numbers, and so <laughs> I'd assume this is the first house. It must be number two, but it would turn out to be two A or something. I'd get to the end of the street, and I had oh, letters no. left over. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, look, it'd been a great kind of break for me in the mid part of my life, and um, I'd said to my wife, "I don't think we can keep doing this," and she said, "Resign," you know, something come up. And really within a day, it might have been two days, um, I had a call from the Wayside Chapel saying, would you be our next pastor? So, That's no small question, though, to answer and to take this kind of work on. Not everyone could. It helps if you're a postie at the time. <laughs> How is that? <laughs> um, you know, I, look, I, the second I heard that phone call, I knew it was the right answer. Did you? That's I never had a doubt. Of any kind, I, I wasn't. I still had to be interviewed by the board and all that sort of thing, um, so I didn't know I automatically was going to have the job. But they came looking for me, and I, um, I knew, I knew from the minute I got the phone call, this is the right answer for me. Wow! It must be said that you'd had a significant Christian ministry before being a postie. Yeah, in my very first life, I was a social worker. Yes. Then I became a minister, and um, 
as part of that ministry, I was running the welfare services for that particular denomination as well. So it, it's a it's a natural kind of coming together of bits of my life. You had another significant turning point in your career, a motorbike accident. <laughs> Where were you at that time in your life and what did that change for you? I was having a very lovely day at the time, um, but I was riding with a group of others and we were heading up to Newcastle somewhere. I was going to preach. Uh, and, a, and a bunch of mates had decided to come with me. And we just found ourselves in one of those funny situations. We're on a road called the Buckets Way. And um, somebody braked hard, somebody else braked hard, and I, I had nowhere to go. So I hit the only street sign there was in a radius of about 50 k's. A, a lesser man would have missed it. But, you know, I, I got it. And uh, it broke pretty much everything down one side of my body. And um, I was I was a mess. And it took a while to recover from that. So what else did that change other than you physically in your life? Oh, well, it slowed me up for a while, which was probably a, a good thing. Um, but um, I, I think in some ways the accident was, you know, my life was sort of destined for a bit of an accident at the time. You know, I'd, I'd spent years um, believing my own propaganda and that uh, how invincible I was and uh, how much the world needed me. My father used to say you're as important as the hole you leave behind in a bucket of water when you take your hand out. And and sometimes you need an accident or something else to make the point. So, you know, that that slowed me down. And um, and it showed me how much uh, Robin, my wife, loved me because she, she cared for me in a beautiful way. Why did you get into Christian ministry in the first place? Well, I was quite happy as a social worker, to tell you the truth, but I was, I was a tad... Um, disillusioned i used to say to my mates who are social workers if if the government told us that the poor had to be shot we'd be out there making sure they were shot humanely so there's a kind of a, a a philosophical foundation that was missing in my life so i, I went to a college to become a, a, a more equipped more rounded better planted in the ground person um i didn't really go to, to become a minister and that that almost became an accident at the end of the course um, an accident for which I'm grateful yeah it was a good time yeah, it was terrific yeah yeah lovely I you know I ended up as a chaplain in Parramatta prison for four years and you know all sorts of interesting fabulous opportunities why is it that you've gone for the poor the prisoner and not other areas of Christian ministry let alone other arenas of life? Um, I really don't know that I can answer that. I, If I was wanting to be a smarty pants, I could say that's what Jesus did. Um, but I suspect it's just where I fit. It's just part of who I am. Um, I, I like to be amongst people for whom the pretension can be kept to a minimum. Well, that sort of narrows down your options a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't mind me asking, but another very significant turning point in your life was the death of your son. Much more significant than a motorbike accident yes. was the loss of my son. Um, there's almost no words to describe what that uh, was, because um, he was my best mate, as well as my son. And he left behind three beautiful little girls for me to love, and they light up my life. 
they could ask me for my credit cards, I'd hand them over. <laughs> They're just the most gorgeous kids. I, I, I gave one a hug a couple of days ago at the opening, and I said, do you know your papa loves you so much he could burst? She said, who doesn't know that? It's <laughs> <laughs> classic. So, look, he died, and and um, in some ways, in some ways, even his death has turned out to be a gift for me. I, I hesitate to say that because I would give anything if I, if I could have jumped into his hospital bed and died and give him back to his family. I would have done that in a heartbeat. I wouldn't have had to think about that. In fact, I was I was bathing the little girls a few months after he died and one of the little girls looked up at me with a face that that only a little grandkid could and she said can you bring my daddy back and it was almost as if her face was saying if anyone can do it you can well that that really rocked me for a while and for a few days I eventually got to the point where I realized I can do no more for her than I can do for anybody else and that is I haven't got magic uh, love is all there is. I can be with you. That's all I can do. Um, so, yeah, this look, since the death of my son, um, a lot of things that gripped, that I hung on to too tightly, have, have lost their grip. So um, I now don't really care whether you think I'm doing a good job or not. Okay. Um, now, that might sound a bit silly, but I once cared a lot. And I went to a lot of trouble. I drove myself very hard I'm sure most to make like sure that. you were impressed. Yes. Um, and now I, I promise you that has gone. I, I don't have 5% of that. Um, I still do my best. I want to I do the best that I can do. But um, the need for approval has evaporated completely. Um, I don't care where I live, what I drive. I don't care. Um, as long as Robin's there, um, it's home. But I, don't, I really don't care where I live. And and so a lot of those things um, that I realise now I hung on to too tightly um, have have made me more able to do what really matters. I wear his watch. I've, I've always I wear two watches, and people yes. ask me what that's about. But his wife, who's a beautiful girl, Sarah, um, soon after his death, said, "Would you like anything of his?" And you know, would you like his watch? And I was very moved by that, and I've worn it every day since. And it's a big, heavy, clunky thing. But anyway, somewhere in the first 12 months, the watch stopped. Um, it just ran out of battery and it stopped at one minute to midnight. And I've left it there. Um, and that watch is always accurate because the overwhelming sense that I have since he's gone is that you only live for five minutes anyway. And I've only got one minute left. So whenever I'm tempted to eat too much, drink too much, go to another talk fest or whatever, I look at that watch and think, is this how I want to spend my last minute? And it, it really helps me sort out what's important. What a perspective. Mm. We probably should all have another watch that says <laughs> one minute. I might go out and buy one tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> there was one turning point for you in the wake of your son's death that somewhat helped you out of the funk into which you understandably fell. Grace has come at me from every direction every day. And I think it always did, but I used to run for an umbrella when the showers of blessing were coming. But, you know, most especially since his death. But um, I, was, I was heading out of Wayside one day and a homeless guy stood in front of me and 
I just assumed that this was another bite for a dollar, which happens to me <laughs> more often than I care to tell you about. Well, that's where you live. <laughs> yeah, so I went to step around him and he stepped to make my exit impossible. And so I looked at him and he looked at me. I didn't know him. And he threw his arms around me and he kissed me on the side of the face and he whispered, that's from your son. And you didn't know him? No. And he didn't know your son? No, no. He knew that my son had died. But that's all. I, I know that fellow now. He's a lovely bloke. He's still homeless, but he's a lovely fellow. What did that do for you? It, it, it's another example of grace is everywhere to be found. If if only you stop, you know, if you pull your head out of your belly button and stop analysing how you feel about moments already gone um, and instead look out and around, grace is everywhere. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. That, that's, that verse is more or less saying stop living in your gut, analysing how you feel about moments that have already passed. The only people who have a present moment are those who have a moment of presence. There's no present without presence. I came home from study one day and my, my children both knew that that um, if they ever needed anything practical, they'd go straight to their mother because I was a bit useless. So I, I had to bribe my children to love me in a way. I'd always come home with lollies or toys or something. And I came home one day and my son, who was about four, was rifling through my pockets and I said to him, oh, I've had a busy day, sweetheart. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Daddy hasn't got anything for you today. I've only got love. And he threw the biggest temper tantrum in the world because he wanted lollies. <laughs> now... It sounds ridiculous, but a lot of us waste our life um, because love is of no interest to us at all. What 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 we want is lollies. Um, now, it's to love somebody is to be present with them, and there is no present without presence. The, all real living is meeting. So, you know, if you and I are present to each other, we have a present. Yeah. Otherwise, we're busy analysing moments gone by. And this is also done in the presence of God. Absolutely. Ultimately. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's what this discussion's about. Graeme, of the no doubt thousands of stories you can relate to us about what you do at the Wayside Chapel and why you do it, is there one, perhaps two, that you could tell us about? Just to wrap. How many hours have you got? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I dare not ask this yeah, because I'm I know there would be so many thousands. There's plenty and they just roll off me. Um, I was leaving Wayside one day and a, and a working girl who I didn't know. Now, there's not many ministers who claim that they know all the working girls, so <laughs> this is a rare moment here. <laughs> but I didn't know this girl, and she said to me, what have I got to do to get a gig around here? And I said, oh, I wanted to brush her off. I said, you have to believe the world could be a better place. And she said, that's me, that's me, I, that's me. You know. So I put her on the telephones, and she was answering her telephone. Now, she'd had 15 years' experience uh, working in massage parlours, and she was actually very good on the telephone. She was <laughs> to, she broke with tradition for us completely, so it was a lovely manner, and telephone messages started to relate to the number on the paper. <laughs> so it was really terrific. And look, over a period of months, she cut back on the number of hours she was working, and she got down to working only a couple of nights. And then one day she came to me and she said, I want to get a different kind of job, and can you help me write a CV? Well, that was a bit of a challenge. I found customer relations covered a multitude of sins. <laughs> 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 
Anyway, she got a job. She got a good job. And uh, within months of that, she got a better job. It's part of our worshipping community. And um, the point of that story is that no one ever said to her, um, you know, you should turn your life around. You should do better than this. Um, she just came to know herself as belonging to others. And all the turning around, I didn't need any engineering on anybody's part. There's another fellow who used to be one of Sydney's prized drunks. You know, you'd step over him. And um, he had a good job once and he had lost it through uh, alcohol and he was coming to work affected and so he lost it. And then that led to him losing his wife and three daughters and house and became homeless. And that's when his drinking went into high gear. Um, and he still had a car, which he decided he would use to end his life with. So he put a hose uh, from his exhaust. This is not, this story's not old. This is quite fresh. Um, and um, it, somebody discovered him, but he'd done a very good job. He was very close to death. And um, he was admitted to St. Vincent's Hospital. On the day he was uh, released, some weeks later, he came straight up to the chapel and he walked into my study and he said, oh, pastor, this is a strong South African. I wish I could do South African. <laughs> Old pastor. He said, um, he said, you have to pray for me. Now, the moment wasn't significant for me. I was thinking, how quickly can I get you out? You're too big to not do something. You know? So anyway, he left. And um, I didn't see him for eight months. And I was walking down to the chapel about eight months later and this big bruiser came running at me up the street, which I was hoping was a friendly encounter. <laughs> um, anyway, it was this bloke and he put his arms around me. He hadn't had a drink. He hadn't had a drink from that moment to this. Now, that's it. we're now two years from that moment and he still hasn't had a drink. He's got a terrific job again. Uh, he volunteers every weekend at Wayside. He's at our little worship service. He's... he's um, He's a man who, when he walks into the room, fills it with life. I asked, I asked him, look, for years I asked him, I asked everybody, where I'd seen a dramatic turnaround. I used to say, what was the moment? What was the thing that turned you? Because I thought if I could discover that and bottle it, you know, we might all be rich. <laughs> he made up an answer, and every time I asked him, I got a different answer. Same with everybody I've ever asked this question to. And it took me a long time to realise that everybody whose life takes a dramatic turnaround, they can almost never uh, name that turning point. And that's because the turning point is, by definition, unselfconscious. It's, it's not a question of being self-aware at all. It's a question of coming to know yourself as belonging to others. You know, I always say an individual is somebody who knows themselves in distinction from others, and a person is someone who knows themselves in connection with others. So these people came to life because they realised they had a family, they realised they belonged to others. That moment is, by definition, not one of, I'm taking stock of my life. It's the opposite. So I, I think we all make a massive mistake by asking people to go into themselves and reflect. I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. So they are met and not worked on. Ultimately. Exactly right. I've loved listening to your story, the work that you do at the Wayside Chapel, and your great wisdom. 
Graham Long, thank you so much indeed. We hope you enjoyed this open house podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.